Father, we pray that you'd open this text to our understanding, that you'd prepare our hearts as we come before the table. We ask that your name would be praised, that your work would be seen for it, what it is, and that we would rejoice in our Savior. We appeal to you to heed the Word of God, to hear it and understand it and to grow in its light. We need you in this hour together and pray that you'd meet with us in Christ's name. Amen. Our journey through life includes numerous leaders who coach us along the way. These leaders teach us what we need to know, but they do far more than just instruct. They also exhort and steer and influence. They advise and direct and model and correct and even discipline. And in this category, we would put parents, coaches, financial advisors, music teachers, dance instructors, probation officers, attorneys at law, and on it goes. In varying ways, such people draw from a well of knowledge, and they proceed with a sense of what is right in their field, and then they seek to direct us in the way that we should go. Sometimes they irritate us. Sometimes they waste our time. There are times when they fail us. But some leaders certainly bless us greatly and even rescue us. We should certainly include in this list pastoral leaders. Pastors are leaders who minister God's truth to His people. They exhort the flock to honor that truth. They point believers to live by faith until they reach God's kingdom. Pastors do not always pastor well. They can fail us. But God has designed His church to profit from the investment of spiritual shepherds who point the flock to God by way of example, by way of exhortation, and by way of edification. As we come to Hebrews chapter 13, the author closes out his message calling us to persevere in our faith in Christ as our great and final high priest, and he fittingly connects this call to the readers to persevere to the relationship that they have with their spiritual leaders in the church. Notice in chapter 13 and verse 7, we find here the command, remember your leaders, or consider your leaders, verse 7. Then make your way down to verse 17. We see here, obey your leaders and submit to them. Another reference there to leaders. And then we find another reference in verse 24, just in the closing Greetings, greet all your leaders and all the saints. That would seem to be the flock that they know, the followers of Christ. But we see these three references to leaders here as the book comes to a close. A preliminary question that we must ask for verses 7 through 17 is are these random bullet points? Or is there some loose theme that is threaded through them? 
And as, as I've been working through the passage, I think the connection between verse 7 and verse 17 might lend to the idea that these hold together a little bit more than simply just random ideas. Now, certainly there are random ideas here in chapter 13. We looked at some in verses 1 through 6. They just keep kind of just skipping through some very important exhortations here. But I think the fact that 7 and 17 refer to the leaders, I think there might be some more connection, more of a, it's a loose thread from verses 8 through 16 than might meet the eye. And I'll just develop it that way. I'll just let you know that up front. But first of all, we see here as we consider the first imperative in this section, verse 7, and that is to imitate the faith of your pastors very simply. Remember or call to mind your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now you notice here the past tense, who spoke to you. And also the phrase, the outcome of their way of life. This may refer then to spiritual leaders who had moved on or who had died. So they're recalling to mind the life example and teaching of those who had gone before. There are two fundamental tasks that pastors have that are indicated here in verse 7. Faithful pastors, first of all, proclaim God's truth. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. We remember Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. As he gives leadership to the church there at Ephesus, Timothy is to proclaim what God has said. And be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You're to labor against the myths for the truth, and you are to preach the word. This is your occupation. This is what you are to do in the assembly. Notice it is the word of God, not personal opinion or self-promoting fantasies, but God's revealed truth. Secondly, we see here in verse 7, the faithful pastors are to live godly lives. Pastors must lead not only by what they teach, but by how they live, as we say, not only to talk, but to walk in the right way. Again, Paul to Timothy in the first letter said, command and teach these things. That is your role within the assembly, to teach the word of God. But notice what he says in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. No pastor is sinless. No pastor is flawless or always chooses the wisest approach to everything. And yet, every pastor, we must say, is responsible to set a godly example. This would include many things, but certainly he should be one who establishes right priorities. The church should be able to look at his life and say that those priorities are in order. There's nothing inordinate there. 
He should handle money faithfully, not in a greedy way or in a foolish way. There should be love that is evidenced in his life for his family, for his church, and for strangers. Pastors should model right speech. That is no corrupting talk, no gossip or arrogance or falsehood. A pastor should have a life that is marked by sexual fidelity to his spouse or to honor God's call to remain faithful within singleness. A life of sexual purity in thought and in action and in devotion to his wife. Should be one of godly character, just generally speaking. Where those characteristics are evident and of spiritual fervor, a soul that is on fire with zeal for God and that also rests in God. Now think of the significance of this. The author is laboring to help his readers remain true to Christ. And in that labor, one tool that he employs is for them to carefully consider the life of pastors who endured to the end in spiritual victory. Follow their lead. Remember the example that is there. The example ought to be there in connection to true teaching, and it should be something that the church appreciates and follows. This is in the ideal setting. Well, let's say again that the church must certainly extend grace to pastors who are susceptible to sin and weakness as any other believer. And yet we must recognize God's standard. We can't just excuse sin. Pastors must live exemplary lives of fidelity to God and of obedience to His Word. And if a pastor does not model fidelity to Christ the church should insist that he step down. His example is compromised, is not intact, and he must therefore step away from shepherding the flock of God. Depending on the situation, he may certainly continue on in the assembly as people nurture and disciple and seek to encourage, but he should not be in a position of spiritual leadership. If a, if a pastor is extremely gifted, sometimes this is a difficult call to make, or naturally charismatic, or maybe the weight of ministry that he lifts can cause the church to look the other way and to keep things going, and we don't want to disturb what God is clearly doing if his life is not an example to follow. What the good shepherd is saying is, remove him. He should not be in that position. No matter what his giftedness or charisma might say. Well, serious stuff. And hard to preach. But I can assure you at our last elders meeting, we spent time in prayer, praying that God would help us to remain faithful as examples to the flock. And we do pray on occasion that God would take us in death before he would permit us to harm this assembly morally. I pray he keeps answering that prayer. And join us in prayer to that end. It is so very important. It is the doctrine that is taught 
And it is the life that lives in line with that truth. Sinful men striving to be faithful examples. Pray. Now again, I believe that there's a loose connection here, a thematic thread that connects 7 and 17. That's not hard to see as it refers to the church's response to her leaders. But I do think that what comes in between is, maybe we could put it in these terms, verses 8 to 16, is hold fast to the foundations of pastoral teaching, of pastoral instruction. And we would break that down into several things. And I, I do recognize it's not a direct uh, outline here that here's what the leaders taught, but I think that's uh, uh, perceived in, in the instruction that's given here to the church. So let's take it that way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Again, this, just, this verse may just drop out of nowhere. Rather, I think this is the central message the leaders preached. They based their lives upon this truth. Christ is our unchanging, unshifting, impregnable rock of defense and saving grace. The Christ who stood with the heroes of faith in chapter 11 is the Christ who will never leave his people or forsake us. He will hold us fast. That's what they taught you. That's the foundation, the center of the church, at the heart of the apostolic preaching, was this truth. That Jesus Christ is the unchanging, undaunted, sustaining power and source of infinite love that will sustain his people for all eternity. He will never fail. He will never go away. There's the centrality of that message, the centrality of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the efficacy of Christ's atonement. This had to be very prominent in the preaching of the early church here with these believers the hebrews but certainly in the apostolic church as we consider its teaching verse 9 do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings so you see there the verse 7 they speak to you the word of god centered on the person of christ verse 8 so do not be led away verse 9 by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It seems the readers were enticed to participate in ceremonial fellowship meals with Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. So apparently they believe that by eating these ritual meals, perhaps even some sort of identified foods, that this would draw them closer to God. And they were, there was at least some level of temptation to these readers to, to, to participate in that approach. That by eating this food, I will be purified. The author knows, as preachers teach, that Christian growth is an internal matter of the heart, not an external matter of ritual observance. As New Covenant believers, we have something far superior to ritual meals of physical food. Whatever it was specifically that they were facing, we can't be sure. But in contrast to that approach, if 
I go to these meals, these fellowship meals, if I eat this particular food, it will draw me close to God. No, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What is he saying? As New Covenant believers, we enjoy a spiritual feast of which the Old Covenant priests who served at the tabernacle had no knowledge. The altar that we have is probably just shorthand for all of Christ's atoning work. That's where we find our spiritual growth. It's in the work that Jesus has done, not in the rituals that you perform. Certainly not in the kind of food that you eat. So the altar, shorthand for the whole complex of Christ's atoning work, Jesus' death on the cross in our place as the sacrificial lamb and his high priestly mediation between sinners and God. That's our feast, is the feast on Christ. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Whoa, okay, <laughs> Western Gentiles, what was, what's all that about? I mean, for them, that would have just been intuitive. They know exactly what he's talking about. It's a reference to Leviticus 16 and verse 27 in the Day of Atonement ritual. On that day, a bull and a goat were killed inside the Israelite camp. Then the blood from those sacrifices was taken by the high priest behind the veil and offered to God as an atonement for Israel's sin. So the sacrifice is made, the blood is spilt, and we take that blood behind the veil, the high priest, to atone for Israel's sin, to purify Israel of sin. After that, on the Day of Atonement, those two sacrificial animals were taken outside the camp and consumed in fire. Now, many sacrifices were eaten by the worshipers, but not these two. The carcasses were taken outside the camp and entirely consumed, a holocaust. That's the background here that they would have understood. Those bodies are burned outside the camp, verse 11. The author now draws a typological connection between this ritual and the death of Jesus. Notice it here in verse 12 where he takes this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the carcasses burned outside the camp on the Day of Atonement. In like manner, Jesus was consumed as the final sacrifice for sin outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, there's, there's no tight typology here in that on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices were actually killed inside the camp. It's not a tight connection. But he just uses it as, an, as, as a somewhat looser connection to say that the connection is there between the burning of these sacrifices and Jesus who dies outside the gates of Jerusalem. And why does he so give his life? It is, verse 12, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus' death removed our guilt. He purified our sin. We were ex it was expunged when Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. Chapter 9, and verse 12. And we come before this table today to rejoice in this very truth. That Christ's blood was shed to purify 
his people. To expunge our moral filth. If you are here today outside of Christ, you've not come to saving faith in Jesus. If you've not come to see your sin, your disobedience to God's will as defiling, as shameful, and the only reason is because you are blinded by that sin. That sin appears to you to be attractive and pleasant and beautiful. But a day may come when the wickedness of your sin, when the exceeding sinfulness of that sin becomes clear to you. And on that day, there comes that moment where you say that I am to the core of my being defiled by sin. Do not forget that there is one answer of purging and atonement. And that is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Though you may reject him in this moment, remember where to come when, those, when that light dawns upon you. For those of us who come to this table having seen our sin in all of its horror and knowing that it took the death of Christ, him being consumed in a sense by the wrath of God outside the city gates. We come, we gather here to rejoice in Christ crucified and risen. This was the gospel message their faithful pastors preached. This was at the heart of what they said. Salvation by means of the substitutionary death of Jesus who gave his life as the final lamb of God slain for sinners. Everything hinges on that in our lives. Remember that teaching. Don't turn away from that teaching, he says. For Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify you by his blood. And that leads then in verses 13 and 14 to a call to separate from the world unto Christ. Therefore, what's the implication? Verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he, Jesus, endured. That's, that's a call for now, to identify with the sacrifice of Christ then. We're called to identify with the rejected, the crucified, risen, vindicated, and reigning Christ. To follow Jesus then means to take up our cross, to take up indeed his cross. It means to leave the world's sensuality and godless beliefs behind and to identify with the despised Christ outside of man's city. To follow Christ means to be on the outside looking up to the eternal city. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This bifurcation is there throughout. There is a way of identifying with the world that will not permit you to identify with Christ. There is a way to identify with Christ. And it will turn your back on the world. We are on the outside, but we are looking up. The atonement of Christ is central to our identity as Christians. But our faith, however, does not stop with what we believe. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't stop with what we believe, but also follows with how we live. Notice the connection here in verse 15. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through Christ, that is in union with Christ, who has fulfilled the old covenant law and sacrificial system, we offer up new covenant sacrifices. What are those sacrifices? Our sacrifices are not animals. Because Jesus has died for us as the last sacrifice. Our sacrifices are words of praise. They're the sacrifices that we have lifted up together this morning. Words of praise to God. These words of praise are offered in sacrifice not to gain our salvation, but to rejoice in our Savior, to rejoice in the atoning work that He did. We rejoice in good news what has already happened elsewhere and has been brought to us. A second sacrifice is mentioned in verse 16. So the church, verse 15, is to be also a singing church. Not only an orthodox church, but one that lifts the fruit of lips that acknowledge the name of Christ and His Lordship. But also with that, the the true church of God is to be one that serves and worships. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to do good. To do good is in part, then, coupled, I think, very closely together, to share what you have, to give yourself away, to be in the service of, of others, to do good, to wisely meet the needs of others by giving away our resources is, as verse 16 says, in some sense, a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. It brings pleasure to Him. Where is your sacrifice? Everything is centered on the sacrifice that Christ has made to deliver us from our sin and to grant us His atoning grace. But the sacrifices that we offer are sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of good works, serving one another, giving our lives away to each other. That's the vibrant church. And so he returns, connecting to verse 7, saying here in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We could settle down a long time into this verse. We won't do that, but just to draw out several lines of thought. First, the flock's responsibility. What is it? Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, this is not blind obedience, it's not cowering submission by any means. But it does mean, and in the nuance of, the, of these terms, it means to extend trust. To extend trust, to prove persuadable, to be responsive. Choose that orientation towards your spiritual leaders, to be responsive to the direction that they give. It's not to turn your mind off. It's not to never ask a question. It's not necessarily that you won't disagree at times, but there is an extension of trust, a persuadable spirit that wants to respond positively to the instruction that's given. 
I remember in, uh, I just can't forget it, but junior high basketball, we had a player on the team that was somewhat gifted, could have probably done some things with us on that team, but he would not listen to the coach. Every instruction the coach gave him was an attack on his person. Well, how well do you think he did? Not well at all. It was one miserable year for that poor kid, and I've wondered what's happened to him since. He could not take instruction. Everyone who gave him guidance and a coach that just got angrier and angrier and angrier as the, as the season went on, he just would not listen. Well, you, you know, as you hear that story, you say, that doesn't end well. It's not that the coach was always right, not that the coach had perfect ideas, but it was this child's orientation that was all off. Rather than be receptive and persuadable, he was resistant. And the coach could have no real effect upon him. Nor did he get to play much then. Well, we understand that in all kinds of scenarios be it music or school or whatever it is, there's, there's a, a necessity on the part of the one who is receiving that instruction to respond properly. So I think it would be wise to say, test what pastors say against Scripture. Be alert. Be thinking. Any decent pastor wants nothing else but for the congregation to be thoughtful and testing things against Scripture. But don't be obstinate, dismissive of what they teach and the direction that they lead. This is, there's a place for disagreement, but there is no place for willful disregard. That is a moral corruption that's on the person in the flock that's taking that direction. Hear them out with a humble heart. And may God grant them the grace to hear you out as well. That's a flock's responsibility. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Have an orientation toward them that's receptive and encouraging. The instruction continues now. What is the responsibility of leaders? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They are given oversight by the chief shepherd who will hold them accountable for those efforts. We read that earlier here in Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The word is carefully chosen to oversee, to watch over, to care or to shepherd the church of God, which is obtained with his own blood. That phrase care for the flock, shepherd the flock that Jesus purchased with his blood is enough to put the fear of God in any half-awake pastor. It is a stewardship that verges on terrifying. But the flock should know that there are people that have stood forward to say, I'm responsible before God to oversee the spiritual progress of this person, of this person, of this person, as the list is completed and ever-changing. The relational outcome 
of this synergistic relationship as leaders are heard and followed and as they give watch care, extend watch care over the assembly with a sense that they are responsible to God for that flock, the relationship that flows from that is, 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 is seen in this last section, last part here, verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Make sure, make certain that their watch care is not a matter that leads them to groan. <clears throat> there are horrific stories of churches that have made their pastors utterly miserable because of their refusal to honor spiritual leadership. I know a pastor, some of you know him too. Disgruntled members planted a bomb in the front yard of the church, and it went off. I mean, that's bad. But honestly, I could assemble a company of pastors up here today who would say, I'd prefer that over what I've experienced. This relationship can be one of the most troubled, heart-wrenching relationships on earth. Maybe next to marriage. But the particular focus here, I think, is less on conflicts of the will, which we need to be cautious. But more here, I think, falls on the, the emphasis falls on members languishing spiritually. The word of God proclaimed falls on deaf ears. It seems to have no effect. The result is that a pastor's prayers are filled with the aching groan of the soul. Pastors pray, they pray, they teach, they reach out, they counsel, they exhort, but a willful resistance to God's truth stymies spiritual change. The counsel of the Holy Spirit to the churches don't go there. Don't do that. If they are groaning in spirit because you will not heed the word of the Lord, you will not follow in the right way, that is no advantage to you. That's clearly no advantage to them. But that is no advantage to you. You are harming your own soul. Don't put yourself in that bad spot, he says. There are certainly times when pastors do not have the best interest of the flock in view. And a train wreck usually follows. Which is why it is so vital that we weigh all of this with the call of faithfulness on the part of, of pastors. But there are times when pastors are genuinely godly people, not perfect, but rightly oriented, who labor for the good of the flock, and when the flock doesn't respond, it's ugly. But when the flock does, there's great beauty that follows. God hasn't put any perfect people in this assembly. From the leadership down to the person who's the most recent member. No perfect people. We sin, we repent, we're forgiven, we carry on. But we see the counsel of the Spirit here. That there is to be a relationship together in which our relationships build one another up in the faith. 
They take us forward. And God has, in His wisdom, placed individuals in the flock who assume that responsibility and place the flock with that, those shepherds to work together in growth. And happy is that follower of Jesus who is privileged to prosper spiritually under that type of rubric. Faithful teaching, exhortation, life example. God uses that to build up His flock. And I will admit, I've never figured out how to pastor a flock. I never will. That's a practice that's going to be ongoing until you're done. I don't know how best to lead a flock. None of us does. It's hard work, not only taxing on mind and body, but there are situations that arise that consistently mystify and confound All that's true. But what a joy it's been to proclaim God's word to this assembly through the years. It's been a joy. It is a joy. What a joy to see God use his word to sanctify souls. To see people slowly, persistently growing in Christ-likeness. Setting sin aside embracing truth and moving forward. It's a joy to see the Lord by His Spirit working in His church to accomplish what He has laid out by His design in a passage such as this before us. Since the day I arrived, this church has evidenced a hunger for God's truth and a zeal to live it out. And that beautiful combination together God has used May the risen Christ continue to build up this assembly. May he continue to unify our efforts to press on together toward that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before this table, prepare our hearts, and I know there will be words of preparation, but Lord, as we gather here and we think of the life that you've given us together as the people of God, we rejoice, we give thanks, and we now commune with one another as believers in Jesus, as well as commune with you, our Lord and our Savior, for this meal was purchased by your blood, and this life that we have together was purchased by your blood. We pray, Lord, for those who are not part of that project for those that have chosen to step aside, to step away, to not enter in to the life of Christ in the life of the church. Lord, we pray that you'd bring them to saving faith, to repentance and change, and to know the joy of a soul that's nurtured well according to God's plan. But for those of us who gather here at this table that know you, that have identified with you in baptism, that walk together as your people, Lord, here we gather with rejoicing hearts, with conviction, certainly in our soul, of our failures and weaknesses as of the people of God, but with thanksgiving for the way that you continue to nurture and develop and build us up. And we know that this meal is meant for that very purpose, to edify, to sanctify. And Lord, 
We pray that you would continue to meet with us here around the table and to the end of this day and into the future as you give us life. We give thanks in the name of our Savior who died in our place and who is coming again. Amen.